Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick and this week's episode is a little bit different in two respects. First of all, we're talking about a car which, strictly speaking, isn't an Alfa, but it was inspired by one of the greatest Alphas of all time and has some Alfa DNA in its history. Second, the podcast is split into two parts. In part one, we're going to talk to Darren Collins of Dasset Classic Cars, who's responsible for engineering and developing the Tipo 184, inspired by the legendary Alfa Romeo Tipo 158 Grand Prix car. Then in part two, we sit down with TV's Ant Anstead, who built the first two iterations of this car. So without any further ado, let's start at the beginning. Good afternoon, Darren. Good afternoon, Guy. A lot of people will, will have seen uh, the car we're going to talk about, the Tipo 184, either at the NEC Classic Motor Show or or on the stand at the, the Goodwood Revival. Mm-hmm. And obviously, a lot's been made about the involvement of, of Ant Anstead, and people will have seen Ant Anstead, Master Mechanic, but probably know less about you and, and your role in all of this. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got involved with Ant and, and then how this project came about. Oh, oh my gosh, right, where do I start? I've been building cars for a long time, since before I was old enough to drive. Uh, I had a coach builder's apprenticeship, a YTS scheme. Then I joined the armed forces and was a chief engineer in the Royal Navy for 18 years. And I used to take cars to sea with me or bits of them on the ships and refurbish them while we're away. And I've always been building cars. Now, Along the way, I always was interested in what was going on in kit car scenes and got to know Ant before the TV. And basically, uh, we kept in touch and we ended up doing a build that some of you guys might know about, which was the first incarnation of the Alpha uh, 158 Homage, which was a challenge between Mike Brewer and Ant by Lancaster Insurance for the Classic Rumble. And then we did the, I say we, I helped a little bit on the Master Mechanics show and with the Haynes book. And during the production of the Master Mechanic, we had this idea, wouldn't it be great to make this car accessible to the masses, which is where the TPO 184 project kind of began. But I've been working at Dowsett's Gosh, for many years, worked on for love of cars as well with Ant. So, um, yeah, done some crazy things, uh, got some crazy things on the go. So uh, watch this space, as they say. I, I guess the, the, the important thing, although we, we've had we've had Mike on the podcast as well. So so you're both friends of the podcast. Yeah. Um, who, won, who won that challenge? Well, it, I mean, it was a charity challenge. And I think the answer to that is everybody won. Um, because Mike brought a lovely Escort uh, convertible XR3i and uh, we had the first incarnation and believe it or not, they went to auction at the NEC and both raised exactly the same amount. <laughs> so uh, it was a, what a remarkable coincidence. Yeah, it was great. And, and so thinking back to that challenge, why the 158 as the as the inspiration for that? Oh, gosh. I think that that was Ant's dream, really. The, the most iconic race car of the day, really. The car that started the Grand Prix or the F1 as we know it today and became very, very successful in the early, in the early days of, of the Grand Prix. You know, the Silverstone Grand Prix, for example, um, 1950, I believe, 13th of May. It was, it just wiped the floor. And considering it was a vehicle that was manufactured or designed, shall I say, pre-war to to be around that long and still 
a great deal of time later have the supremacy in uh, in motorsport you know that kind of says it all for for us and 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 the project so it really was you know that that pinnacle that iconic vehicle that was chosen for the for the classic rumble and if if, if i remember correctly and i'll get lots of emails if i don't one eight of the the nine rounds of the first formula one world championship and Odie didn't win Indianapolis because they didn't go. Yeah, there was all sorts of funny things went on. And I think Fangio actually got kidnapped on one occasion as well. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, interesting times. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the, the engineering behind them. What was underneath the uh, the original car, the challenge car? The original car, that was a ladder chassis. That was a box steel frame ladder chassis. It had a Jaguar front suspension components. The rear axle on that was a offset differential that I think it originated in the TR7 of all things. So it was a right mix of things and it actually had the MX-5 engine in, would you believe, that, uh, that was put in at a, at a slight angle in there as well. And that really was basically a, a created-as-you-go-along car. It was never intended to be road-ready for the auction and I think it would have done much better had it been a proper a proper road-going car um, when it came to the auction. But nevertheless, it it moved and drove. There's lots of pictures of it out there on the internet, uh, and it was just a great-looking thing. And, and how long was it between that and the and the Master Mechanic series? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think the Rumble, we were working on that about 2017-ish, 18, don't quote me. It all, it all merges into one now. It was probably... A year or so later, when the Master Mechanic series came about, and that was basically during a break of filming of, of Wheeler Dealers that uh, that they have every year, Mike goes away to do his own stuff like the Trading Up series, and Ant was looking for something to do whilst uh, Mike was doing doing his show. So that's how it sort of came about, really, as a as a show to fill that that period of time. And, and mechanically, that one was slightly different, wasn't it? It was the same same fiberglass or the, the same mould, not the same body, clearly, yeah. but, but a very different set of underpinnings. Yeah, I mean, we actually used the, the same moulds that we made originally for the, for, the, uh, for the challenge car. You're absolutely correct. But it was entirely different. The, uh, the base for it was an MG TD, and it had an Alpha Spider engine, and uh, again, a modified rear axle, but running the front suspension from the uh, from the MG, and the rear suspension was a, a bit of a uh, homemade affair using uh, a lot of the parts that came off the donor um, Alpha. And you mentioned the the Haynes book, and the you know, the Haynes book has been on the stands alongside the the Tipo One Hundred and Four, but it really is it's more connected with the Master Mechanic car or the concept of building your own special isn't it it is yeah i mean the 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 haynes book is really the book of the tv show if you think of it it like that in respect to the three incarnations of this car the 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 book itself is quite a it's a fitting end to what is the the most amazing haynes dynasty story for those of you that don't know john john uh haynes's very very first book that he published was how to build a special, and Haynes uh, recently sold out to uh, Autofix to go digital. So there are going to be no more printed hard copy books. So the actual 
book the, of the show, the How to Build a Special, which is the Master Mechanic car, is the very, very last Haynes book to be published. So it's a, a lovely sort of bookends, really, of the How to Build a Special at the beginning and How to Build a Special at the end of the whole story. Um, yeah. which which is just fantastic. And I, I think, I don't know if it was a limited edition, but I know with my copy, there was a, a repro of the um, the original John Haynes book, which is quite fun. Yes, yeah, we actually uh, got Haynes to to run a, a, a set of reprints of those. So uh, that was that was great. And uh, we do have some still knocking around. So uh, they are they are available. It's not a plug, but... Uh, um, <laughs> I would say the quality of the of the supporting artwork has improved over the years, but the, the spirit <laughs> is remarkably similar. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of funny, really, because, uh, you know, we were actually making the, the show and Ant asked me to do some little sketches, some measurements of uh, when we were cutting the, uh, the chassis. And um, I did some... Sort of because one of my one of my hobbies is 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 art and watercolor painting and stuff like that. And I did some sketches for him, just rough sketches in my mind. And uh, we we were just looking at them over production because he wanted a record of some measurements. And he was like, "Wow, these are great. We should really incorporate this into the book." And then that's how the sort of the the book itself. If you get a copy, the illustrations in the book are are beautifully done. Now. What we did is we started off with some pencil sketches and, and, and sketches from Ant and everybody on the team, and then they were digitalized into a, a format by a, a friend, Paul, of ours, who, who's a brilliant um, CAD artist. So he made them, you know, he tidied them all up. But there is, there is still a pencil drawing of mine in that book, which is in the, <laughs> which is in the electrical section. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's a few crept in there. But... Um, yeah, the illustrations and the uh, the history section of the book too was uh, was uh, put together by John Lakey, a very well known um, researcher in the in the automotive world, and it you know he managed to get hold of some photographs that have never seen the light of day, and we got special permission to put them into the book um, to tell the story of the one five eight at the uh, at the beginning of the of that uh, that book too. So uh, there's something in there for everybody. And as, as as we've said, the the book isn't really related to the to the new car, but the new car came out of of that process. So, if the the second generation car, the master mechanic car, was I guess was Ant's desire to to redo the first one, but do it properly, or to do it better than the the first one. But but that approach was never going to scale to to build cars for a wider audience, was it? No, exactly, and that's kind of how the um, Tipo One Eight Four sort of began life because we couldn't replicate the master mechanic or, or expect people to do that at home because you know um, MGTDs have to die <laughs> to, uh, to 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 make the master mechanic car, and uh, there's only and, and more more importantly, Alpha Spiders have to die. And, and Alpha Spiders have to die, and you know. <laughs> You'd have the you'd have the uh, you'd burn in both hells of uh, spider and MG hell, wouldn't you? If you were if you if you started killing all of those, so um, that's how we we came about the idea of uh, making it viable. Um, shall I say, for want of a better word? And, and I think we had this conversation. I can't remember if it was a Goodwood or at the NEC, but I've had lots of people talk to me about the car. I mean, everybody who sees it is is interested in it and 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 how it came about, and it kind of. Kind of falls into two camps. There's there's one camp amongst 
alpha owners and enthusiasts. There's one camp that's somehow disappointed that it's not an alpha underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other camp, which I would say is a, a much bigger group, is the group that says, you know, there, there are enough 105 spiders and, and particularly 105 coupes that have already been lost or turned into GTA or GTA M replicas without butchering you know, a classic alpha to make a recreation of, a, of, of an alpha Grand Prix car. So I think most people on balance seem to be happy that whatever it is that, that's underneath, it's not an alpha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't please all the people all the time. And, and I think we had to make the decision. The, it, was, it was a dream that both Ant and I share of, you know, handing down the, the dream and encouraging people to get involved in engineering and do something that they might not necessarily think they're capable of doing. So the, the whole ethos of the project was to keep it simple and make it easy to assemble so you don't have to be an engineer to put it together. And going back to the accessible side of things, back in the time we were looking at what we were going to use as a donor, people were giving away the MX files when they were failing the MOT. You know, we, we had people literally handing over a couple of cars that, that, that was almost worthless. Now, like everything, they're going up in price and the donors are sort of between 500 and 1,000 pounds now. But equally, you know, if you were looking at using an alpha-based uh, donor, you'd be, you'd be looking at far, far more than that anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you, know, you said there about people who, who don't have much experience in engineering. The other thing that it strikes me, and we'll talk a bit about the, the cost of it at the moment, is it's it's kind of well within the the realms of a a sixth form college or even a a school doing a bit of fundraising and and getting together the budget to have a bunch of students build one of these. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we we want to encourage that. We you know it'd be great if students could could build these cars. You know, going back to the day when most of the technical colleges used to have you know manufacturers like Triumph and others used to provide chassis for the kids coming through the colleges to work on. It'd be great if we could do do that sort of thing, and then there's a bit of competition between the colleges because they can race the car afterwards. So there's that competition element. But yeah, I mean, anything to encourage the kids. And and one of the most amazing twists in the story of Tipo is that we've been working with universities in Hungary, believe it or not. Really strange pairing with uh, you. You know, it's just one of those opportune things that happens. And I've had teams in the Hungarian universities sitting in front of computer screens that want to be future automotive engineers, that want to be NCAP test engineers, modeling my chassis design in every combination of crash test, twist, torsional strength, and all those things that you know you need to learn to be an NCAP test engineer using the TPO as a basis. So the amount of data we've got from there on 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 the chassis and improving the product is you know it's priceless priceless but but the alternative would have a you know a price on it, it, it I, I guess that's what tens or even hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of of research effort yeah exactly and and um you know the guys over there there's a wonderful proving ground over there there's actually a teapot over there up and running at the moment we've got 
TPOs being delivered to customers in Europe. We've actually got, would you believe as we speak, we've got a, a, a lorry. Um, we've got another four kits going out this weekend to customers. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's really exciting times. So assuming I'm not a, a sixth form college and I don't have a you know a fully equipped workshop and stuff, I'm going to do this out of my garage. Mm-hmm. Apart from a, a a decent set of sockets and spanners, what what am I going to need to actually put one of these together? Really, not a lot, to be honest. I mean, the the, the biggest thing if you've you know if you've not got a load of mates <laughs> is is getting the engine in. So you can normally hire an engine hoist for for a day. That is really the only specialist equipment you need. And to prove that, what I purposely did, we've got um, a YouTube channel, tpo184.com, which has got the assembly guide on for the car. And I thought, I'm not going to build it in the workshop because in the workshop, we, we're fortunate we've got ramps and all sorts of fancy tools. I'm going to build it in what we call the showroom, which is just a plain room with a concrete floor. So all you need is a couple of axle stands and a socket set and some screwdrivers. And you can see that in the video. There are no specialist tools involved um, other than, I, I said earlier, an engine hoist. So you don't need you know, to, to feel as if um, you, you've got to have some fancy workshop. That's the whole idea behind the, the, uh, the project and the way that it's been engineered. And, and there is one other thing you need, obviously, which is, is, is a credit card or... Um... <laughs> So, what's you talked about the cost of the donor car? Yeah. Um, what else? And I, there's a range of options. What's the kind of sliding scale of of how much you need to spend and how much you can spend on a on a one eight four? When it comes to need to spend, I mean, what we do is we we um, we break it in easily to you. What we what we what we do is we sell a starter kit, which is normally about ten thousand pounds. To be fair, that includes everything you need pretty much to get yourself a rolling uh, vehicle with a body shell and all the other bits and bobs. So then onwards, there are lots of other little kits which are all available on our website. They make up all the other parts of the car. So you'll have things like a, a cooling kit, which will have your radiator and your hoses in. You'll have a fuel delivery kit, which will have a fuel cell, fuel pump on the hoses. Mirror signal maneuver kit, which is exactly what it says. Um, it's a steering wheel, fancy steering wheel, and some mirrors and various other little bits. So, to answer your second part of the question, you can spend as much money as you would like on, <laughs> on the car, but to buy everything from us is about twenty thousand pounds, give or take. But I would imagine, you know, people will build their car on a budget. Some will build it under that. Somebody might want to do an absolutely millimetre-perfect, accurate replica of Banjo's 158 in a particular race and wirelock every nut and bolt beautifully. And and I, I encourage both of those ideas. So, you know, if somebody wants to run it round on their old little MX-5 wheels while they're saving up for their wires, all them sort of things, it's great. I mean, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I just want to see the creativity. Yeah. And I guess the other the other thing that lots of people have have asked me about and and, and we chatted about is the, the uses for the car. So I mean, it, you look at a, an open wheel car, and your immediate assumption is that it's it's a, a track day toy. Mm-hmm. But but there's at least in theory there's there's two other directions you can take it rather than just something for you to play around in on on an open track day, aren't there? Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, in fact, December last year, I got 
at um, our TPO through the IVA test. So our vehicle is now fully road legal. And uh, to achieve that, we have to produce a mug on and a light kit for the car. Now, as you say, there's, there's lots of different routes you can take with this car. You can use the car 24-7, 365 days of the year if you keep those mud guards and the lights on the car. But equally, you can remove those items, but it will limit you to daylight running and you're not allowed to throw any spray up if you, uh, if you don't have mud guards. So as long as you're using hand signals and uh, you want to look like Fangio, you can use the car on the road. But if you want to be slightly more practical with it, you can keep the lights on or you can have a combination of both. You can drive it to the race track and within half an hour, take the wings off. There's only two bolts on the front, three on the back and go racing. And, and the, the idea of driving it to the track is, is fantastic. You, you say you can drive it 24-7. There's a couple of slight practical limitations and the, 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 you'd, you'd have to drive to places that weren't very far away and, and and if you drove to your local Sainsbury's you wouldn't be able to bring much back with you no I mean there, there is there is kind of that I mean having having said that we've got a five gallon fuel cell a racing fuel cell that comes with a kit so the car's a little bit well I say it's two it's two thirds the weight of the donor and a donor MX-5 is easily going to achieve you know 30 miles to the gallon so you've got 150 mile an hour range, which in today's world where everybody's getting range anxiety with EVs, <laughs> you know, I, I think once you've been in a TPO for 150 miles, you you know, you don't yeah. want to rest anyway. So Well, yeah, and I, I guess if you drive it to a Sainsbury's with a fuel station, you can drive to 150 miles away and then drive home again. Ideal. And just, you know, I don't know, <laughs> buy a packet of crisps or something, you'd be perfect. <laughs> But but you talk about driving it uh, to a track and racing. So the the other aspect to this, you talked about the road approval, but it was also designed not just with with kind of fun track day use in mind, but as a as a proper racing car. Yeah, I mean, right from the onset when we we looked at this uh, concept, we wanted to have the ability to use the car on the track. So what that meant is, whilst I was sitting, scratching my head, holding bits of tube, thinking, am I going to glue all of this together? We had some very nice people come down who were representatives from sort of the, the MSA, the Blue Book, uh, people, scrutineers. Um, and obviously, we got copies of the uh, up-to-date uh, regulations, the Blue Book-FIA regulations, which tell you the thicknesses of the tube, the radiuses of the bends and the roll cage and the seat belt mountains, all those sort of things that, uh, that I engineered in the car from the very, very beginning. Now, I've been building kit cars for a long, long while. I've worked on all sorts of, of cars. So I engineered in what I best thought was crash protection in various geometrical ways into the vehicle to add into additional strength. And combining that with those crash test simulations that we've done and the torsional twist simulations, I'm just absolutely blown away that it, it performed exactly how I envisioned it to perform. So whilst motorsport, and there's always a disclaimer, it's, it's a dangerous sport, what we've done is we've engineered this car to be as safe as we, we possibly can uh, or, or being as conscientious as we can in uh, in the design from from day one, so that you know gives us a bit of peace of mind when we we've got these people turning up at the at the circuit wanting to race. 
And at the moment, I know, I know what my biggest disappointment with the car so far is we we came along to to see it and and I, and I couldn't fit. So um, our club manager Nick Wright was was lucky enough to have the the test drive. Although, as people will find out from the article, he didn't get to go very far. <laughs> is is that something that will be um, be remedied in the the production vehicle? Will tall fat people be able to to buy one as well? Well, you see, on on the benefit of being the same. <laughs> <laughs> as Fangio, I'm 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 a little person. And when this whole project began at the beginning, the, the body shell we actually used for the challenge car and the body shell we used for Master Mechanic, we pretty much dimensionally made those two incarnations of the cars to be a reasonable representation of the 158. Now that gives you quite a small cockpit because Fangio. Yeah. You know, when you look at the, the drivers in those cars, they were they were bolt upright. Most of the, the driver was almost out of the car, effectively. So there wasn't much room. And those drivers back in the day were a lot shorter. So we realized this from, from day one. Now, we got so far into the project, and I was locked in to design the chassis and the running gear to fit within the body. So I had those constraints from day one. But it became quite apparent that... You know, normal-sized people, shall I say, because I'm only little, it's a bit of a squeeze. I'm, I'm waiting for you to tell me I'm going to have to have three inches taken out of my legs. No, no, not at all. Not at all. What we've done is all the production cars, it's only the one car, the the uh, the prototype car, that has the chassis, the size it does. Every single Tipo from now on, uh, including the ones that already been delivered to the customers and the ones that are on the way, have got an additional 200 millimetres, uh, eight inches in the cockpit area to take into consideration a driver with a helmet up to six foot three in height. We've also sold a lot of cars or got orders coming in from America. So our next biggest challenge is the width of the seat, believe it or not. So uh, there's always there's always something to, to catch you. I, I, I guess you have the, the advantage that the... the... The track of the um, of the MX Five subframe is probably slightly wider than the than the original Grand Prix car was, so you've got a little bit of of space to play with. Yeah, there's a little bit of leeway there. I, I think from day one we wanted to make this accessible, so taking the Mazda subframe, the rear subframe, which has a centre mounted differential, and offsetting it to give you some more cabin space was was going to be cost prohibitive. So what that actually did is it did put a little bit of constraint into the height that the driver sits. But again, with the increase of the length of the chassis, that's now no longer a problem. Has that affected the the gear change routing, or is that still no, the, no, the, the beautifully engineered <laughs> but but slightly odd looking? Odd, odd. That's an unusual word, but uh, <laughs> beautiful looking design. No, I, I, from from a, an engineering perspective, it, but it's not where you expected to go. No, I mean again, you know, when you, I fortunately geographically, I live very close to Jim Stokes' workshops, and being a car guy, I've known Jim for of oh, donkey's years, twenty plus years, and I've been loitering with intent in his workshops every time he's had that. 158 that that uh, the one they built there and he's had it back most recently so you know I've crawled all over and inside out and upside down of a real uh, 158 and the gear lever on the 158 is not the most ergonomically placed uh, and I think we'll leave it there um, okay and we we had to come up with another solution using the Mazda so 
again, I just look back at history and looked at a lot of single seaters, things like Coopers and, and cars of that ilk. And they had some sort of really interesting but clunky looking gear change mechanisms. So what I did is I kind of looked at the basics of how they worked and tried to make it aesthetically pleasing. And that's what we have. So to answer your, your question in a in a <laughs> eventually. The gear change is unaffected because where the stretching the chassis is, is actually behind where the, the mechanism uh, sits. So that remains unchanged. It's exactly the same. Uh, for those of you who haven't, who haven't seen the gear change, there's some pictures of it in the article. And it, it, it is a work of art. It just where it's positioned to be uh, kind of convenient for the driver and, and somewhat authentic in terms of where the gear change is requires a, an interesting routing because of where the, the MX-5 running gear is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it, it, it's a lovely piece of work. Actually, on the on the the subject of beautiful engineering and um, uh, the potential American market, uh, I saw on Twitter the other day you've um, you've been coming up with some other interesting accessories that that Fangio would pro- possibly have been surprised by. Um, I, I don't think he had a cup holder in his uh, his nineteen fifty Tipo one five eight. You know what? That was that was so much fun to put a cup holder in there because. You know, cars these days, you know, this new generation, and particularly if we're aiming it at at, at kids and whatever, you know, they judge cars by cup holders and Bluetooth connectivity and all that nonsense. So um, we had this idea and and always wanted to take one through a drive-through. And I thought, I'm going to, I didn't even tell Ant, I thought I'm going to make a cup holder, but I'm going to make the most period racing 1930s aluminium aircraft looking cup holder that, that, that you possibly couldn't stick it in there. So, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And we've actually, I actually templated that last week as well. So we can, we can laser cut those now. And uh, if anybody wishes to have a, a cup holder in their teapot, they are going to be available. So you said you've just shipped four out so sales are obviously going reasonably well mm-hmm. um if i decided one i wanted one tomorrow and and don't don't expect me to phone up with a card number tomorrow but if i if i did how long would i have to wait for a kit at the moment currently you probably wait about three months now we did launch quite a while ago and we're fulfilling those orders now because of the covid scenario it's been absolute nightmare for everybody to be fair and you know, just shortages in materials, difficulties with transportation, various other things. I'm not going to go into into it. We all know the situation of the world. So those orders that we took from launch, we're now fulfilling those. So roughly by Easter, the new orders that are placed now should start to be fulfilled. Okay. And and we talked about it being engineered for racing. And I know you were you've been talking to the BRSCC about a, a racing series. Has that got any further, or is that still something once you've got a, a base of customers out there to to revisit? I think the difficulty we have with starting a race series is it's always a bit chicken and egg because to get a race series you need a, a certain number of finished vehicles to to actually establish and start the race series. So what the BRSCC have said to us, and very, very kindly, they've offered track 
time to anybody building a car that wants to to get out and about on the track on their practice and test days. And then when we've got an, uh, a sufficient number of cars and a sufficient number of people that want to race, then we can start our own race series. So again, it was only last week working with the BRSCC, we're looking at writing those specifications because that day is getting nearer and nearer. So I need to get those specifications finalised so that those serious builders now that want to race purely want to race know what they're what they what they what they need to do to to uh, to comply with the new rules. So again, if if I phoned up tomorrow and ordered twenty, then everything's in place to to get you get a series up and running. Yeah, you might please phone up tomorrow and order twenty. Yeah. <laughs> so, be great. Um, yeah, so everything is in place, and uh, we've we're already working with because. Part of Dow sits and myself, you may have heard of the Association of Heritage Engineers. So we're all all um, dealing with engine builders and people, particularly for the race series, because at Dow sits, we, we you know, effectively, we build dreams. We're building all sorts of weird and wonderful vehicles. We are not engine rebuilders per se. So we're speaking with guys that supply all the catering boys for their race series that build their engines and, and people that race in the MX-5 categories, various other things. So, and, and there, I mean, there are literally, we know the um, the Alfa Romeo Championship used to be run by BRSCC. It's with the 750 Motor Club now, but mm-hmm. a, a lot of the BRSCC meetings, there were 150, 200 MX-5s there racing. So there's, there's a lot of MX-5 engines tuning experience out there isn't there oh there is quite i mean and, and the thing with the mx5 is there's such a, a great community there's a lot of aftermarket support there's a there, there's the, the, i'm going to say the cars are plentiful they still are plentiful we've already had people that race in that community interested and 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 looking at the the, the 184 is another another sort of option because it's their familiarity because of the the, the dry train and everything is is uh, 100% MX5. Then it's it, it's in their comfort zone for them. But the the aesthetic of the car and the way that it it's handled and designed with the uh, changes to the suspension and the period wheels and everything else it, it is something that they want to. Uh, have a go with because they think it's going to be more engaging and obviously it was designed around a a particular uh, mx5 version Mm -hmm. if those get to be a little bit thin on the ground how how much effort does it take to you know move it to a a newer version of the of the running gear well we the, the car is designed primarily around the mark 2 mx5 which is 1998 to 2001 and the reason behind that or thinking behind doing that is that they were the cars that appear to suffer the most with corrosion on the, the sills, the front parts of the chassis, not the parts we use, but actually the body shell and the wheel arch and all those sort of things. And they made quite a lot of them. Now, the Mark 2.5, which came obviously after the two, there's very subtle differences they're not unsurmountable. There's some crazy differences as an engineer. When you look at it, you think, why on earth would you do that? Because that must have cost you a fortune. Silly little things like the steering universal joint is about 10 millimeters longer in the Mark 2.5 than the, than the Mark 2. And, and, it, and obviously, it's a tight squeeze in, the, in our yeah. chassis just because it's 10 mil longer. And, and you think, you know, what financially made you make that decision? But nevertheless... There's lots of silly little things like that. Now, I have built a prototype 
TPO uh, using a lot of 2.5 parts. So it's not the end of the world when we run out of Mark IIs. But, you know, they made they made thousands of them. So yeah. it's going to be a long while yet. And there's still a lot of Mark two and a halves around. And I think, you know, I think 2030 is going to be more of an issue than running out of Mark II donors, to be honest. And, yeah. and even then, we've got we've got a solution for that too. And I, I think the last thing I was going to talk to you about, and it's probably, you know, given the, the, the link to the TPO 184 is the... Uh, the the one five eight inspiration. It's probably the the most tangential question. But I, I I know when we spoke before, you said that there's also the the possibility and the aspiration to have have multiple bodies. So maybe have a Maserati two fifty F or a Lancia D fifty body uh, on the on the same running gear. Has that idea progressed, or are you, um, you yeah, happy well, happy to be fulfilling um, uh, alpha bodied ones for now? I'm sworn to secrecy, <laughs> um, but I cannot confirm or deny that I'm already working on those drawings and they're being digitalized at the moment, allegedly. So there are lots of exciting things to come. So we are working on different body styles to fit onto the existing TPO. So again, that affordability, once you've got your TPO, you, you will have the choice then, or, or you can you know, to have either or a multiple array of bodies um, that you can swap and change onto your chassis. And I assume your your Hungarian colleagues have ruled out if you do a Lancia D50 using the um, the side pontoons as as additional fuel tanks as they did in period. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would go down too well with the NCAP test regulations. No, no pr- pr- probably even if it was a... a, a a compliant fuel cell is probably not the place you'd want to mount it, is it? No, not only that. And having just put, you know, trying, doing that thing that everybody said was impossible, which was getting an Alpha 158-esque homage, whatever you want to call it, through an IVA test uh, in 2021, now we're into 2022, there's no mean feat, I tell you. So we don't want fuel tanks anywhere they shouldn't be, thank you. <laughs> I, and the other comment that I had, which was an interesting one, was um, after we ran we we ran a couple of articles. One about the the Goodwood revival uh, in the December issue, and and one about um, a, a little bit more detailed about the the Jim Stokes one five eight that you you talked about earlier. And the interesting thing about that one five eight is that it, it's not it is a one five eight in every respect, built from um, from one five eight parts from the basement in Portello. But that was never a car in period. That was a, a collection of parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not quite in the same sense that the Tipo 184 is a homage. Um, it's also a, a not quite a, one, a 158, despite having you know a, a, a genuine engine and an alpha running gear. It, it still isn't really a 158. No, I mean, it's like, it's like the old story about Bugatti Type 57s, isn't it? You know, where they say... Out of the 762 built, there's um, 850 of them still on the roads. Well, we had we had Jim on the podcast um, back end of last year, um, and I can't remember the numbers, but um, uh, he was saying there are more Jim Stokes, I can't remember, 60 or 80 engines, or one or the other, out there than there were factory-built cars. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? But I, I think as long as, you know, as long as we're still able to do these things, I don't think anybody should should necessarily, you know, 
say no more, you know? No, and, uh, you know, there are definitely going to be purists in, in the club and, and people fortunate enough to be able to own real 158s among them who look at this and say, no, it's it's not for me. But I think for, for a lot of us who were you know, inspired by by Fangio and, and the car, the idea of, of having something that whether we buy them or whether we just you know, appreciate the fact that the mark and that racing heritage is being taken out to a, a, a much wider audience through through the TPO 184 is, is a good thing. Oh, definitely. And, and um, you know, long may it continue. And the way I look at it is, is if it, it makes you feel good as an individual owning and driving your car, then then that that's all that matters. Yeah. One of our, our club members, again, a recent uh, podcast guest, is a is a hill climb driver in a uh, an Alpha One Five Six GTA with a a three point eight liter engine, and he's trying to persuade me to to go hill climbing in in a road car. Um, and and I must admit, I have haven't had the conversation with my wife yet. <laughs> but I did quite like the the idea of going up Chelsea Walsh in a in something that looks like a one five eight. I'm never going to be able to afford to do it in a real one. So um, I, I think even if the BRSCC series you know, it takes a longer time to to get enough cars out there. It'd be nice to see some in in sprints and hill climbs over the next year or so. Yeah, definitely, and that's that's our intention. Really, is to encourage people to get out and about in their cars and to use them and do some amazing things and and just have some amazing experiences. Brilliant. Well, I, I think that's probably all we've got time for. So, th- thank you very much for that. It's it's been been fascinating, uh, and and I look forward to to getting the um, the article done and out there as well. No, it's been an absolute pleasure, Guy. Thank you very much indeed. A couple of weeks after we spoke to Darren, we managed to snatch a few minutes with Ant to get his perspective on the project. Sadly, for the first time since episode two of this podcast, we had a few technical problems, which led to the second half of the recording becoming corrupted. But more of that later. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I've... Uh... I've just landed in uh, in England, so you're going to get a jet lag podcast. So if I say anything uh, rude or slurry, blame it on British Airways. So we um, we're at an event at Dasset Classic Cars. Um, we've had uh, Mike Brewer amongst other people here. So so just to to give you a bit of a challenge, um, this will be our fifty first podcast. Mike did podcast number nine for us. Oh my god! Um, and Mike is currently our most popular podcast. Wait a second. I'm, uh, I'm not going to be beat by Mike Brewer. So uh, that's, nice. the, that's so, your challenge. Wow. So you've had uh, 44 chances to outstrip Mike and you failed. Okay, we're going to do it with this one. So if we say something controversial or rude, it'll get in the press and then the press will then drive the audience and everybody wins. So we just finished talking to Darren um, about the whole process, but where did the idea come from to do a, a TPO 158? What was, what was the inspiration? I mean, it actually started out out, um, out in California. You know, wheeler dealers uh, for a season boils down to nine months. And what that means is three months of the year is off. And most people would take the holiday. But, you know, I work in an industry that's freelance. So the worry was that we had all this great crew on wheeler dealers and we were going to lose them because, of course, they don't want to not work for 12 weeks. They were going to go on to other shows. So... Um, I kind of hatched up this plan. How do we keep all the uh, wheeler dealer freelancers, the directors, the camera, the sound, the producers working so we don't lose them and um, make use of the wheeler dealer workshop? And at the same time, that coincided with me having this hankering for building myself a special because by then I had established myself in the US. I 
I'm always building stuff. I, I, I hadn't, you know, I just finished my Mustang and, you know, I started to get itchy feet. So um, I set about to build a special. So I said to the network, look, I'm going to build this special anyway. We've got a 12 week window. Why don't we film it, not lose the crew, make use of the workshop space. Otherwise it's going to sit empty. And uh, that's exactly what we did. And what I really love about that show, it's called Master Mechanic, is it's a genuine start to finish, real-time build in 12 weeks. It, and it is incredibly real. We break the fourth wall. We talk to the crew. Um, you know, I shoot some of it myself. I shoot some on my phone. In fact, I got injured quite badly in the middle of it. I had to have an operation. So it it really was, you know, a warts and all reveal of, you know, uh, this crazy idea and struggling and muddling through to build a car from scratch. So that was the genesis so of the So do you still album. play football during the filming? I do. In fact, in fact, I sit here in this podcast with a battered ankle because I was tackled. <laughs> yeah, I'm still managing to, at, at almost 43 years old, I'm still managing to hold my own in this SoCal Premier League. Just, I'm clinging on like, <laughs> no, I can still make it. But it was the second second attempt at the 158, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, originally, we'd, um, we'd come up with this idea of having a build-off, a charity build-off at the NEC between Mike and me. And, um, you know, it was a bit of a competition thing because ultimately we, we were both given a small bit of a budget to go out, get a car, restore it, and then auction it for charity. And then ultimately, whoever's car auctioned for the most uh, won. And ironically... We both auctioned for the same amount, which is annoying because I really wanted to beat him. But Mike, well, and he, you, you scratched for a Grand Prix car and he tarted up an XR3. No, no, he did a beautiful job on an XR3. <laughs> yeah, he did uh, He did restore an XR3. It was beautifully done. And um, myself and the team here at Dowsets, we set about building a, a scratch-built car. So originally back then, while I was mulling over what was the best car to do, you know, I'm experienced enough to realize that we only had a small budget and the expensive parts of cars are things like chrome and glass, the tricky parts of doors and latches and locks. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, wow, and I love 1930s Grand Prix cars. And I'm thinking, well, there's no glass, no doors, no chrome. There's nothing shiny. The engineering is relatively basic and agricultural, I know. Let's pick, in my opinion, the best, you know, 1930s Grand Prix car. And then ultimately that led us down the path to, to, to narrow down to the 158 because it was the first car to win a Formula One race. So it was historic. So I got to have a bit of a teaser on the, um, on the charity build off. Because of that build, we created molds and then those molds gathered dust. So, you know, wind the clock forward to that 12 weeks off in the middle of Wheeler Dealers. I, I was just going to build a special anyway. I fell in love with the car we did for the charity build, and um, the molds were there. And and I, you know, I just said to Discovery, "Hey, come and build this." And it's weird as well because at the same time, you know, Haynes were very secretly, um, you know, moving away from print. And the first ever Haynes manual by John Haynes back in the day was how to build a special. And it was kind of serendipitous that I was building a special. So it kind of had this really lovely timing about it. The fact that we had this time off, I wanted to do it. The molds were ready. Um, Haynes were happy to document it into the last ever printed Haynes book. And um, yeah, that's how the one on the show got made. But what was really interesting about the show car is if you've watched the show, and if you haven't, shame on you first, <laughs> but you should. It's called Master Mechanic, and it's it's really real. But the build was actually quite advanced. It had an offset rear axle, which required a lot of machining. The the engine was angled. You know, everything about that car was bespoke. The donor I used was an Alpha Spider, and there's not that many of them. So when you consider people would watch the show, and hopefully the point of us doing this is that they're then inspired and they want to go and have a go and you know get their hands dirty but it was pretty obvious that 
at the end of that build, it would take an advanced home engineer to, to repeat the car. You know, the, the offset rear axle on its own was, yeah. it is, a, is an advanced bit of engineering and it required machining and you know, new drive shafts and hardening and splined ends. And it, it, it kind of goes well beyond the average mechanic. And, you know, I, I was kind of scratching my head because it was quite obvious from social media and from feedback from the show that people were inspired by the build. They liked the show and they, you know, we're now entering a time when COVID is starting to hit. And I think people's mindsets changed. There was more value in doing stuff at home or doing stuff with family. You know, people weren't allowed to travel, so they're already turning their, you know, their um, attention to the garage. So I sort of sat with the team at Dow Sits and with Darren in particular and said, gosh, we've got the moulds and, you know, we, we have the Haynes book and the, the show's a real, you know, inspirational bit of content. Let's, let's do it, but let's not use a spider. Let's not offset the axle. So we sat about sort of thinking, well, what is the best donor? And we narrowed it down to the master. You know, when you consider, I think, and we chose the Mark II deliberately because the Mark I is, let's be honest, a modern day classic. Yeah. You know, we don't want many people scrapping Mark Ones, but the Mark II, still a great car. The stats were overwhelmingly in our favor. 2,000 Mark IIs are taken off the road each year for MIT failure. From a drive and engineering perspective, they're pretty solid. But from a body perspective, the weakness is the rust. So if we could create a, a kit that people at home could have a go and build their own 158, and it discounted the tricky Mazda bits, the rusty parts, but made use of the rest, you'd actually end up with a really cool car. Because it has the uh, it has the magical ingredients: manual, rear wheel drive, five speed, twin cam engine. It, it was just ready. Rack and pinion steering, disc brakes. So um, we just set about doing it. We went and got a Mazda, stripped it down, and started to engineer. And you know, I got to take my hat off to Darren. He was such a big influence in that build. He really, really you know, took it by the horns, and and he engineered a fantastic car. And if you actually compare the master mechanic one on the show to the one that we made with the Mazda. Although on the face of it, they look similar. They are incredibly different. The Mazda one's wider. It's taller because we wanted to incorporate a roll bar. Um, because one other thing we wanted to do was add, add a one-make race series. So the car needed to pass MSA standards. It needed a particular roll, you know, roll, bait, roll cage. Um, so we ended up just going on this really cool creative journey where using a Mazda and as little parts as possible. And that's where it all went wrong. The remainder of the conversation is worth mentioning, though. The next subject we talked about was the challenge the Dowsett's team has set themselves and Ant to demonstrate how easy the car is to build. They're going to build one live over the three days of the Practical Classics Classic Car and Restoration Show at the NEC from the 18th to the 20th of March. The team estimates the total construction time for a car at 100 to 150 hours, but that includes harvesting the parts from the donor car, which will have been done prior to the event, but it's still a fair chunk of work to do in just over 24 hours. We'll be there to see how they get on. And also talked about his new venture with Dodge in the US, the Radford Racing School in Arizona, which is built around Dodge's SRT cars and trucks, but thanks to Dodge's links to Alfa Romeo through the Stellantis Group, also features a number of Stelvio Quadrifolios and a 4C if you happen to be in the area. That's it for this episode, and as usual, we'll be back in two weeks' time on Sunday the 27th of February to talk about the new Alfa Romeo Tonale, which by then will have seen in the metal for the first time at Alfa Romeo's new UK headquarters in Coventry. Episode 52 will be available to download from 1.30pm from the club's website and YouTube channel, from Podbean, Podcast Addict, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and everywhere else good podcasts are found. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>